And I especially want to focus in on the third verse. I think it's pretty natural for us to have a hard time waiting God. You know, waiting, dot, 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 that little ellipsis there that puts us on pause. How do we respond when God puts you on pause? Uh, you know, there's the, the woman with 12 years of bleeding. 12 years, 12 years she looked for answers. And then uh, finally, God steps into her space. And then we have Jairus who was right there, and he's in a hurry, man. He's in a rush. Got to get God home to my, to my daughter. And now he has to wait because Jesus just put him on pause to deal with this, this woman. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were promised a child and then put on pause. Uh, Jacob spent 20 years working for his uh, wretched uncle Laban, 20 years on pause. David pursued and persecuted so often, pause. Job, during the bad theology of his friends, put on pause. You know, and then all the prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, Habakkuk, and all the whole of Israel, basically waiting for the blessed hope of Messiah, put on pause. We live in a culture that doesn't pause well. We live in a culture that as soon as things don't happen, like we think they ought to happen, it's like, okay, well, I guess I have to move on then. I want to encourage you today to remain steadfast in prayer. And if you're wondering, why has God not answered this request? Instead of moving on, I want you to revisit that request today. Bring these things that maybe we've moved on from, and God really hasn't. It's just that he's waiting on his perfect timing to move and to deliver so there's four things we're going to ask you to pray as you pray together. If you have your prayer journals, might be good to jot these things down. First thing is, as you pray together, pray for the fruit of the Holy Spirit, for more of God to be shown in us while we wait. And one of those, one of those aspects of the fruit is peace. And uh, I, I need to ask for that a lot. Uh, another thing I would ask you to, to pray for is that God would surround you with others, others who will encourage you while you wait, because it's hard to wait alone, and it's hard to not have answers. And not that friends have to come in and provide the answers. They're just there with you, believing uh, with you. And, and maybe when you're weary, like David was, physically worn of praying, uh, that they're there to pray for you and with you. Uh, then I'd, the third thing I'd say is seek for wisdom. Uh, maybe the waiting, the pause, is teaching us something. And God really wants us to catch that before he moves. And then the last thing I would say is, uh, as you pray, come back to the altar with maybe a prayer request that he gave up. We give up. God does not. So I want us to use this time as we pray to wait together. So go ahead and uh, get into your smaller groups. I'll give you some time to pray, and then I will pray for all of you uh, as we close. So go ahead and uh, spend some time waiting together for the Lord.
come before you and say, hear our prayers. Lord, I pray for these, my brothers and sisters. Um, there may be things that are happening in some of our lives where all we can ask is, why, Lord? Why? And it's silence. Lord, help us to be steadfast in that silence, to know that you're not ignoring us. Know that you don't that you do actually care for the things that we care about so deeply. But Lord, 
You're so much more immense than we are. You are not constrained by time and space. You're perfect in all of your ways, and your sovereignty over our lives means that you will perfectly fulfill each and every plan bring full redemption to this world. God, sometimes from our viewpoint, it's hard to see that. Maybe our eyes, like David, just grow bloodshot, damn, hard to focus. Lord, we pray that you would show yourself. And even if it's not the way that we expect, God, it would be in a way that would cause us to just hang on all the tighter to you, uh, to keep doing whatever we can to reach out to you. God, help us to grow in our patience. Help us to become a people of enduring faith. Help us, Lord, to become a people that uh, will worship you and trust you, no matter what the circumstances look like. Because, God, we don't follow you because things are good in our life. We follow you because you alone are good. So, God, I pray that you would cause us to be a people that would gather with one another, reminding one another to not give up, keep persevering, keep moving on, forward in prayer, forward in trust. But, God, would you, would you sustain us until that time of deliverance unfolds before us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. that to gather together and be vulnerable in praying. Uh, one of the reasons that we set aside time in our prayer gatherings is first off just because we believe that each and every one of you is a priest, that it is not our role to just sit back, be passive, and to receive worship that you get to bring. So we just want to empower you and equip you guys to go before God on one another's behalf, um, that you can be active in that way. Um, and because I promise you that if you just lean into the, this instruction that many of you have seen, that many of you have really learned how to pray very well. You've grown your ability to pray for others, to, to just approach God uh, for things. And so we want to just continue to be doing this because hopefully it's helping us how to interact with God. So thank you. Thanks for leaning into that, you guys. Uh, because now we're going to transition into our teaching time into the series that we are calling God's Purpose, Our Purpose, where we have been looking through all of these different mission statements of Jesus, because between um, Christmas and the cross, Jesus did a lot of things. And it can be tempting to us to try to figure out, like, well, what is it that he came to do? And, you know, I think he came to do the thing that I like best. And what we want to do is actually take Jesus at his word. What did he say he came to do? And so we're looking through a bunch of these statements in which Jesus said, I have come to, or I will, or I will only this or that. And we're working our way through these statements, really trying to gain a picture of who Jesus is, what he came to do. That's our hope, is that if we leave you today with just a clearer picture of who Jesus is, and I'll count that as a win. Count that as a win, because we're hoping to really get rid of maybe some misconceptions that we have about Jesus, get a clearer picture of who he is. Who is Jesus that we have committed our lives to is what he came to do. Um, and misconceptions, or maybe just like even lies, 
that we can believe are sneaky, um, and they're especially prevalent, you know, when we're young and with kids, right? When you're growing up, you have a lot of these misconceptions about, like, the way the world works or about sorts of things. Like, I had a friend one time who told me that because In God We Trust is on the penny, that he thought Abraham Lincoln was God, because it said, like, oh, In God We Trust, and it has a picture there. He's like, oh, yeah, we've got these little, like, coins with God on them. Um, or my older sister, who's a very smart person. She's a very educated and intelligent person. But there was one time when we went to the beach as kids, and it was very, very windy, and she was really confused. And she asked my mom, like, why is it so windy? How is it so windy if there aren't any trees here? Because she thought, because trees sway in the wind, that trees are actually causing the wind. You know, that's where wind comes from. It comes from trees like swaying. You know, I guess that's like what growing up in Oregon does to a kid. Um, but she was confused about that. Or like, I think some of the reasons that we like believe these, these misconceptions or these things or these lies is often because, one, like we're either too prideful, um, and so we just kind of like latch onto these things. And we just tend to believe them because well, this is just what I have to do. And one of those misconceptions can be that like it's all up to me. Life's a story about me problems are my fault, the solution's going to be up to me, and then the results are all for me. That's one of the kind of the prideful things that lead to that. Or it can even be on the flip side, it'd be the opposite of pride, but sometimes there can be this like self-deprecation that we can have where like every problem is my fault because of me. I've dug this hole. I'm going to have to dig my way out of it. I'm going to have to figure this out. And that's definitely not the case. But even we see that like with, with little kids where it was just recently that li- my daughter Lydia was around a little girl who was maybe like three or four years old, so not that much bigger than Lydia, but she was determined to like pick up Lydia and carry her around. And she's like definitely struggling to do this. And so I just made the comment because I'm watching her and worried that she's going to hurt my child and saying like, you know, she's pretty heavy, isn't she? The little girl responds with, no, no, she's not. And I mean, she's just like struggling. And in her pride, she's like, no, she's not heavy. I got this. Um, and there can be that. Or sometimes, like, especially with the self-deprecating or almost like embarrassment, uh, one of the struggles that I had growing up, since I was homeschooled until the eighth grade, is that by the time I went to school in eighth grade, I had to encounter something I'd never actually encountered before, apart from girls, and that was lockers. I had never used a locker in my life until eighth grade. And by the time you're in eighth grade, they don't teach you how to use a locker. You should just know how to use a locker. But I was too embarrassed to admit to anyone that I didn't know how to use it. That, you know, you have to, like, pass the number, and then you go to the number, and then you pop it up. I never asked for help at all. Suffered through the entire year without ever opening my locker, because I didn't know how. I was too embarrassed to ask for help. And I carried around the world's heaviest backpack because and I would often hang out at my locker because a bunch of my friends were there, but didn't know how to use it. One time a friend asked me, like, hey, can I put something in your locker? And I had to switch it and be like, no, you've grown. When really it's because I didn't know how to open it. But the story that we're going to read today, we're going to see essentially two of those responses that we can have. Um, two of those kind of like lies, two of those different temptations we can have to either respond to Jesus or, or not even approach Jesus out of pride. Say, I've got this. I can take care of it. Solution's up to me. Um, problems are my problem, I'll figure it out. Or just out of some of that self-deprecating, that embarrassment, that fear of maybe rejection, whatever it is. And we're going to see a story today. Um, it's going to be in Matthew chapter 15, um, in which we have a model for how not to do that. Um, and it'll be in Matthew chapter 15. It's a very short story. And so the benefit is I'm going to be able to sprinkle in some verses from Mark as well. 
Um, and it's a really cool thing whenever stories are in multiple Gospels because you get extra details that might not be in one. And sometimes people get really freaked out by some details being different in the Gospels, and they think, like, you know, they included a detail that the other didn't, so I don't know what I believe anymore. But one of the kind of obvious answers to that is one of the reasons that there are different details in one Gospel versus the other is because the Gospel writers knew about the other Gospels, believe it or not. And so oftentimes, especially when you get guys like Luke or John, um, the Holy Spirit allowed them... I would say a, a generous amount of snark in their Gospels. And so when you get guys like Luke, Luke writes his Gospel and he says, many others have written about Jesus. But I've put together an orderly account. I've put together an organized account. And so you get some other details in different Gospels. That is not because the Gospel writers are on a different page, but these Gospel writers knew what the others wrote. And they're saying, hey, there are other details that are missing. There are other things that you should also know. And so I'm going to sprinkle in some verses from Mark. Um, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to kind of work our way slowly. One of the benefits of this story being a short one is that we're going to be able to work our way slowly through it. And so just beginning in Matthew 15, verse 21, we have Jesus here. Right after he's just had a fight with the Pharisees, it says here that Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. So what had happened right before in this chapter is Jesus has this big fight with the Pharisees. They're just always in his business. They're always questioning him and things that they shouldn't be questioning him. He needs a break. So what he does, he grabs the disciples, takes them on a road trip, and he goes where you have to go whenever life is tough, whenever you just need a break, whenever you need a rest, right? And he goes to the beach. Um, because it says here he goes to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And if you don't know what Tyre looks like, I mean, there's, there's a reason Jesus went there. Um, so this is a modern picture. This is what it looks like. But still, um, the beaches back then were famous. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I need to get the disciples out of here. We're going to go to this area. We're going to go take some time, rest, relax, refresh. You know, I'm a carpenter. I've been working on this thing I call a surfboard. It's going to be great. Um, we're going to be able to hang out. Um, and I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus went on this little trip to Tyre and Sidon, to get away, to let things settle down because of the conflict with the Pharisees, dust really got picked up, and just to rest, but to be able to teach the disciples in private without everybody else causing a stir, without anybody else causing a stir. And in Mark's gospel, it says that he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know it, yet he couldn't keep presence. Okay, so he entered this house. He didn't want anyone to know. So he went to this place, higher inside. But then what happens right after that, when we get to verse 22, is, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely pressed by a Jesus is in this place for rest, for refreshment. Each day with the boys, and this woman comes out asking for help, asking Jesus to heal her. And some of the first things that we notice about this woman that we're told is, first off, that she's a Canaanite woman. She's a Canaanite woman from that region. Um, and while that region was beautiful, Tyre is in essentially southern Lebanon there, this is outside of the Holy Land. It's outside of essentially the clean area in the minds of the Pharisees and the Jews in that time, that he has entered this Gentile territory. 
Um, and it was Josephus, the Jewish historian, who wrote about the area of Tyre, and he said that the people who lived there, the inhabitants of Tyre, were our most bitter were our most bitter enemies. And even highlighting that more is in Matthew's Gospel, it says that she was king. And if you know much about Old Testament history especially, then you'll know that the Canaanites were essentially the sworn enemies of the Jews. Right? So this woman, from this unclean area, she's a Canaanite, just a century before, like her grandpa would have fought a war against the grandparents of many of the disciples here. And the Canaanites had a ton of prejudice against the Jews in that area. They were sworn enemies. And so already the story starts out in an unclean area of this unclean woman with all of this baggage and all this history. And the interesting thing is we remember just a few weeks ago, we talked about Jesus calling Matthew or, and Levi. We talked about just how difficult it was for the Jews to get along with tax collectors. Well, the thing is that that's true, and they had a huge conflict with tax collectors, but at least Levi was Jewish by nature. He was a traitor, you know, a turncoat, but at least he was Jewish. For Matthew and for Levi, this woman coming up, I'm sure even he's thinking, like, and finally the eyes are off me. Finally someone worse than me, lady from Tyre, this Canaanite woman, she's bringing this problem, she's from an unclean area, and the problem is an unclean spirit as well. Um, so he's probably thinking, like, great, this is awesome, finally, I'm not the worst one around here. But it says what she's doing. She was crying. She was begging, crying out, making a loud scene. Um, and the word here that's used for crying, uh, some of your translations might have a different word because it's actually, and here's your vocab word for the day, it's an onomatopoetic phrase or word, meaning that it's, it sounds like what it is, like the word buzz. Buzz is a buzz. Or boom, boom is a boom. So essentially, she was cawing. The Greek word is caw. And it's the sound that like a crow makes. So she was coming and she was cawing. She was crying. She was making all this noise. She was desperate for Jesus' help and Jesus' attention. Begs at his feet. Then if you see what it says in verse 23, it says, Jesus did not answer word. Comes screaming, crying. Jesus did not answer word. Me- I think we're going to have to take a pause and go, like, what is doing? What's going on? doesn't say a word. The disciples, though, do say a word. <laughs> it continues on. It says, his disciples came, and they begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. Or the NLT translates it as, Jesus, tell her to go away. She is bothering us with all of her begging. Right? And so they're saying, like, Jesus was tired, tried to get away, go to the beach to go to this beautiful area. Now we have this lady, like, screaming, being annoying, essentially, what they say. They're, they're saying, like, she might have a need, but her approach has caused us to not even care about the need. This is annoying, Jesus. And it's interesting because Jesus still doesn't say a word. He doesn't respond to the disciples here after. He doesn't. And we're not exactly sure why she's met with silence here. Many of us know that even though it seems strange for Jesus to do that and for it to tell us Jesus didn't answer a word, many of us know that that isn't actually that strange in our lives. We've probably experienced silence. We felt like we cried out to God. We felt like silence. We leaned it to a minute ago. 
Um, but some of the theories on why this was is, first off, we're going to kind of see from the context, the reason Jesus is silent could be just because it's not exactly the right time for this. Like if you remember the wedding at Cana where Mary comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine, do something. And he's like, not my time, not my problem. Um, he ends up doing it. But this could be a similar situation because we're going to see Jesus had this hyper-focused mission to the Jews and to the area that he was in. And this woman, from an outside area, outside people group, might just be that he is making it clear it's not time to begin that kind of ministry yet. Or another thing, Jesus could be silent as a bit of a test. We talked a lot in our Abraham series just about how God will test us to draw faith out of us. He'll test us to give these opportunities for us to express faith, these opportunities to persist, these opportunities to lean in. Maybe this is what he's trying to do, to draw her closer to him, if she will lean in. She will lean in. Then in verse 24, after the disciples are like, get her away, all this, Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So this is actually, this is our mission statement right here. And on its own, this is a weird, confusing mission statement, right? And it might cause us to pause and go like, we have no idea what this one means. I'm from Northern Europe. There's no way I fit in that. Um, and that's one of the beauties of being able to just use these statements as kind of directions to just go to the story. What's the context of what Jesus Where in this conversation, where in the story of the gospel did this take place? Because Jesus throws this out, and on its own, it seems very confusing. How did he respond in this way? But as we look through the story, and especially what's happening here, we can get a little bit of a picture of what's going on talked about before, Jesus is in this Gentile area, right? He's entire Sidon. He's outside the Holy Land here. And especially when it comes to kind of this region and how he's going into this parable where he says, like, hey, my mission is here for the lost sheep only. It can cause us to kind of pause and wonder. But if you remember last week, we were in Matthew chapter 10, right? We talked about Jesus's his, uh, motivational speech he sent the disciples out sent them out, hey, you're going to go on mission. One of the verses that we went through there in Matthew chapter 10 is that Jesus told them specifically, hey, this is your first mission trip. He says, go only to the lost sheep. Don't go to any Gentile cities. Actually said, don't go. And this was actually a feature of the start of Jesus' ministry here, that he began actually with just the Jews, just the lost sheep, the house of Israel. And there was actually these kind of expanding, um, essentially, like, phases of his mission on earth where he focused certain groups and it expanded out. But one of the reasons that he did this is we see many places in which Jesus explained why this was. We get to Romans chapter 15. Jesus said, I tell you, Christ become servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be So what Jesus is saying, first off, is that I came as the Messiah, and one of the reasons I came as the Messiah is because God promised Abraham, promised the patriarchs, that he would save him. He would send a Messiah. 
As we went through it, especially in Genesis chapter 12 and in 11, that God made all these promises to Abraham, right? That he took this one family and he said, hey, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. Through you. And so Jesus, he made that promise to Abraham. So first and foremost, sending the Messiah is to fulfill that promise. Hey, I made a promise to this family. Still waiting for that to be fulfilled. First and foremost, he's come to fulfill that promise. But we even see way back in that message to Abraham that blessing is going to be to you and to your family. But the purpose of that blessing is that's all the nations, right? It would result in blessing for others. Because the next verse in Romans, if it was in verse 9, it says, And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So essentially, Jesus is in the middle of this. It's like, come to fulfill the promise. By chapter 15, he's kind of saying like, hey, I'm still in this fulfilling the promise part. Um, it's not time. I'm to go out to the Gentiles just yet. And over and over, Jesus is kind of saying this, that it's not necessarily Jew only, but there is an order. There's an order. There's a priority. I'm going to fulfill my promise I made to Abraham, his offspring. Then we'll work our way everybody else. And so the point in, that he's saying in this phrase is kind of that this lady's come too soon. Um, she should have waited. Like Jesus went away for a reason. He didn't go away to serve, to do this. They shouldn't even essentially know that he is in this place and in this house. She come too early, but yet still persistent. Persistent. It's supposed to be about this order, laser focus on just fulfilling the promise to Abraham says this. He responds to her with that. Hey, I've only come to the lost sheep of Israel. She would have known what that meant. I'm not a lost sheep Canaanite. I live in Tyre and Sidon. But, back into it, verse 25. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help Lord, help Some of your versions might say that she came and worshipped before him. Um, the NIV translates it as worship. Um, because the word there is proskuneo. It's essentially that she either like bowed to kiss him or she bowed all the way down prostrate before his feet. Because that's actually one of the main words that we translate for worship is this, this bowing, this going prostrate. Um, you know, we're in South Dakota, so we're worshiping this. Um, but the two words, especially in the New Testament that are most often used for worship is this proskuneo, which means bowing. Or in the Hebrew, it's yada. We translate it as praise. What yada means is waving your hands. So it's just waving your hands. That's crazy. Um, and so worship, it's this, this physical thing. She is begging God. She's bowing. She's worshiping him. She's kneeling before him. Right after he says, hey, I came only for these people. Like, please, Lord, help. And on verse 26. Jesus responds, It isn't right. Take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Okay, now at first you're probably thinking, wait, call her a dog, right? Call her root? It seems like a bit confusing. I mean, there's like a bit of tension here. And this verse has actually triggered people uh, throughout the years. I promise there's no need to be triggered. If you're ever asked the question, no. Did Jesus insult this woman? Did not, dog. It wasn't an insult. Um, but because it is true that the Jews did refer to Gentiles as dogs in a derogatory way, that's true. 
Um, it was to say that someone was wild, mangy, scavengerish, um, in a negative way. Um, there's also a lot of, especially rabbis, um, there are some very famous rabbis who would just call anyone who didn't follow their way of life dogs. And it was to say that they're uncivilized, they're untrained, they're, you know, inhumane, they're kind of beasts. Um, but the word that they would use to insult someone with the word dog is this word kuan. So they would call someone a kuan, it's a stray dog, it's a mutt, it's the lady in the tramp word, essentially, there. That's the word that they would use there, that derogatory slur for dog. Um, but here's the thing, when Jesus says dog in this passage, he doesn't call her a kuan, he calls her a hynarian, um, which is a pet dog, a puppy, kind of like the family pet. Um, and it's often thrown out like, ah, oh, they didn't love dogs like we do today. Well, nobody loves dogs <laughs> Our culture, we are obsessed with It's crazy. Uh, I know people whose dogs eat better food than I do. Um, but it's not true that they just hated all dogs, that dog was always a negative. And you do see throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, that dogs were used for farming, for sheep herding, as pets. They were kept as pets. Uh, I don't remember which chapter it's in, but especially in Job. One of Job's big complaints is that there were guys who he didn't like hanging out with his dogs. And he's like, God, oh, this is the worst thing ever. My dogs, they're around these guys. Right? And so they were prized. And people did have them as pets. They were around. Right? And so he isn't insulting her. He's not using a racial slur here. But still, there's a bit of tension. It's not exactly a compliment either. Um, because his response still seems like a rejection. Right? He responds to her with this parable. It's not right to give the dog what's it. I mean, he's essentially saying, like, there's an order. Like, I came, the Jew first, then to the Gentile, feed the kids first, then you feed the dog. He speaks to her in this parable, essentially to say that there is a priority. My mission, there's, like, the right order. Now, that still creates a bit of tension, I think. Because he's saying, you're not one of the children. Right? which could be triggering, and that could be offensive if she thought that she was one of God's children. You know, it's like Jesus has a lot of fights with Pharisees, religious leaders, but he doesn't really say anything like meaner to them than he does to anyone else. They just get triggered. They get offended, especially because he says things like, hey, you need to get close to God. And they're like, how dare you? I am. And so here, it's not insulting. It's just reality for her to not be one of the children. He essentially has to recognize that she's not one of the lost She's living in this Canaanite area where idolatry, where other gods are worshipped. He likely is following other gods, other idols. So, is it insulting if it's the truth? Right? Like if we were, we have to face the reality that we have to throw out different verses, like once you were not children of God, right? You were children of wrath. Is that offensive? Well, it's only offensive if you disagree. How dare you say, my way of life led to that. But really, it doesn't have to be offensive. It's only offensive if you don't. If you're going to argue. Because with her life, living in this Gentile area, likely worshiping Gentile dogs. If anything, Jesus is diagnosing the situation here. You've come to me for help. You never come to me for help. Never worship Yahweh. You're not one family member. He isn't one of those. I think this is meant to point to us. This is a bit of a reminder 
just to not take for granted the fact that we are right with God. Not just assume, yeah, like I am right with God because I'm such a good guy because I've grown up in the church and I go so often. I think we do have to take a step back and consider, like, okay, after this, we have faith in Him. Not just humans are not just right with God automatically. So this idea of this parable with the dog, not meant to communicate, like, you're just gross and dirty, get out of here. But it's to say that there is a status of a child. There's a status not a child. It is different. Very different. This is what he says. Order, you don't have a status of a child. As we mentioned, like, you know, we, we love dogs. It's cultural. We love our dog. We have a dog named Willow. Many of you are mad. Great. He's very spoiled. He lives a life of luxury. I promise you that. We love her. We take care of her. Um, she's like not a real dog. She's beef. She's feeling like fancy food, diet, stuff like that. She brushed every single week. Um, it's nuts. But we love her to death. We treat her very well. Once we had Lydia, we had a baby. We always say it's not that we don't love Willow anymore but we love her a whole lot less. Um, you know, just because, like, the priority has been changed. You know, like, she sits on the floor. She can eat scraps. She can eat the things that fall. But, like, the good food, the food that takes prep, is going to be given. Lydia, right? And so here, Willow sits, uh, doing the vacuum job as Lydia grows food all over the place. But that's just what Jesus is saying. Like, hey... Not supposed to just trigger, but like, hey, you're not one of the family members. See that, right? I have children. I have sheep. You've never been a part of that. Jesus is, is diagnosing that problem and saying, like, hey, my children get treated very well. My children get raised. My children can come to me for anything, and I will answer their prayers. You're not one of them. Not one of them. Jesus says it's not right to take food from the kids, throw it to the dog. And this is a big kind of defining moment for her where she's come to Jesus with this request. First she's met with silence. Then she's given these two parables, okay? I only came for the sheep. I only came for the kids. She essentially is faced faced with that temptation of either the prideful response respond with, well, fine, I didn't want you to help me. You probably couldn't. Um, I don't want to be here. You've offended me. Gone. And a lot of us can often do that, right? If you've ever had one of those moments where someone has triggered you, they've offended you, after you made a request, I don't even want your help anyway. It happens. It happens. And it especially happens when we come for God. I hear it a lot with people who, especially, they find out that I'm a pastor. It's like they want me to sell Jesus to them that, that, that will impress them, that they'll approve of. And oftentimes you'll hear people say, like, well, you know, if God's real, then he's got some explaining to do to me. You know, if God's real, like, he hasn't done a good job that I think. And have this prideful attitude to come for God's Potentially, if he's good or not. Can approach God with this pride. Approach God with this pride to say, like, well, you can either answer my prayer the way that I want it, or all the else. You're not, you're not the God I was looking for. Um, and there are a lot of different situations in which we will feel this. We'll see this in our lives. 
one of think, the most memorable times in which I felt this this pride welling up in me where I wanted to just like be done because I was on a, actually a mission trip to the Middle East where every year around certain Islamic holidays we would pull all the missionaries out of that area and someone from our church had generously offered to put these missionaries up in a fancy hotel, fancy resort, right on the Mediterranean there. And then we sent a team out to just like bless and serve these missionaries so they could have a week just their family in a beautiful area. When I was 19, I got to go and just like babysit their kids and take them to the beach and say, hey, if you could go to this beautiful Mediterranean resort, teach like a Bible lesson during the day and take the kids to the beach in the afternoon, I'd be willing to do that. Sounds hard, but I can do that. Um, but at this big resort, every day in the middle of the day, like all the men would get together and they'd play this water polo game. And before every game, they would draft. So you'd line up all the guys, you'd be drafting who you think's good. Now all the guys who are at this resort, they're all like these giant European dudes. Tons of like really buff, really athletic, really fit guys, you know, all these like Germans and British guys and Middle Eastern dudes. They're all big and buff and they look very imposing. But one of the things you need to know, especially about Europeans, they're like surprisingly unathletic. Um, especially ones that look very athletic. You can have these big buff European men and then you see them throwing like this. What are you doing? So, believe it or not, I was not always, you know, as physically imposing as I am today. Uh, especially at 19, I actually was pretty scrawny, pretty skinny. And so when it came time to like draft, I had seen these guys play. I knew that they threw like, like they were using the wrong hand. And they're like drafting all these people and they're like talking about it openly. They're like, yeah, how about that guy? Oh, he's pretty heavy, I don't know. Or like, how about that guy? And I remember one point them discussing, you know, how about this like scrawny American guy? Like, no, don't pick the skinny American. And they waited, it was picked way last, way last. Okay, then it came time to actually play. And like, I have like a decent throwing arm. I was pretty into baseball. And when it came time to play, it was so much fun because I could just, you know, take the ball. I could put it in no matter what. Um, we were supposed to kind of keep it down that we were like Americans and we definitely weren't going to tell anyone that we were on a mission trip. But at one point I had my whole team chanting USA, USA um, for that. And it's like our trip leaders are like, Evan, what are you doing? Like you can't be seen with these missionaries now because of that. But I was like, oh, come on, it's fun. But the temptation would have been like, man, they're not going to pick me. Like the team's basically full. I had to like sit, wait, get into the game. And then finally I got into the game. But the temptation could have been like, they don't know what they're missing. Fine, you can lose. I'll let you lose. And just to leave. I think often we can have this approach to God. We can think, you know, God has said some things I don't like. He's laid some standards I don't like. He hasn't impressed me very well. He hasn't made me his first pick. So, I think if God existing fits in our worldview, then we probably should be free. That's not us necessarily approving of God based on pride. Um, but sometimes I think we can have the opposite. Instead of responding to God out of pride, we could respond from that self-deprecating perspective as well. Where she could have responded to Jesus and said, you're right, I'm terrible, I'm sinful, my fault, that this, this demon possession is a thing, it's my fault, this is that, you're right, I'm too sinful, I know I don't deserve Some of us can be tempted on and on where we know there are verses about forgiveness, where we know there are verses about God answering prayers. Got to be for other people who don't have thoughts. So we put a distance between following Jesus. We quit after the silence. 
prisoners anyway. Hard for us. The abolitionist, the guy who wrote the song Amazing Grace, John Newton, said, it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low opinion of a person to work promise to redeem Right? When we don't come to Jesus because we feel like we're too sinful, we're too bad, we don't deserve it, in his stack too high, then we actually are not just having a low view of ourselves. A low view of you, for sake Oh. Here. Here, amen. Still persisted. Still persisted. And Jesus clarified, hey, you don't qualify twice. Look at the beauty of how she responded to that. Verse 27. Says, no, hey, not right to take food from the children. Throw it to the dogs. Praying with them. Even the dogs eat crumbs fall from their master's table. Jesus comes and is like, hey, not one of the sheep, not one of the kids. He says, yeah, you're right. You're right. He admits, like, I'm not living the life of uh, religious people. I'm not following you in that way. I haven't. She says, even the smallest crumb. Be enough. I just want a crumb what you have. I haven't followed you, my shepherd. Not the family. Please, Jesus, give me some of what you have. It's amazing the response here because she's actually one of the first people, especially if you look at Mark's gospel, she's the first person to actually get one of Jesus' parables. Uh, we talked about it earlier in March where Jesus was asked by his disciples, why do you speak in parables? And he essentially says, confuse people, right? To, to make it clear who's listening, who's oppressing, who's going to just quit and actually listen. So Jesus tells her this parable that, you know, I only came for lost sheep. You know, I don't feed. I feed the kids first and then the dogs. And she's listening. She's saying, okay, so you're saying there's a change, right? Dogs do get She actually listening, leans in. He's the first person who understands the parable, and she answers Jesus within the parable. Things that the religious leaders would have been offended at. She goes, oh, I'll listen. I get it. I, you're not owing me anything. I'm not owed anything. But out of your goodness, out of your overflow, maybe if kids don't want it, it's really messy. Dogs get to eat crumbs. And especially if you look through the previous chapters, well, the religious leaders and the Jewish people weren't really eating everything. They didn't really want what Jesus was serving up. Still belong here. Essentially, Jesus loves it. Verse 28, Jesus loves that she gets it. And Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Daughter was healed. That Jesus, he answers. He's like, yes, this is great. He recognizes her great faith. Recognizes her great faith. That's what Jesus was looking for. I think that's why he was silent. I think that's why he told these parables, giving her that opportunity to test that. 
And over and over in the Gospels, Jesus will command people with great faith, people who have trusted him, right? The centurion of Matthew 8. Luke 17, there's a leper. In Luke 18, there's a blind man. Over and over, Jesus. Great faith. The fascinating little story just leads to this moment. You have great faith. That's what your daughter And so kind of three main takeaways here that I think we can go home with. First, we have to wonder, like, where did she get this faith? How did she know about this? She's an outsider. She's a Gentile. She's from a different part of the world. But in Mark's gospel, in verse 25, Mark 7, it says he heard about it. He heard about it. She either heard what he's done in this area. She heard that he is in the area. She had faith because someone told her about Jesus. So she comes in, she calls him Lord. Mark's gospel, he calls him son of David. Right? A Gentile would not have known that he goes by the title. Someone had told her, this is the son of David. This is the Messiah. Come for the lost sheep of Israel. Come, heal these things. So that's going to be the first thing to look at. Give others the in Romans chapter 10, says that faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So at some point, she had a moment, which she heard. She heard that there was this amazing healer around. And I just want to remind each and every one of us, there is power. There is power in you telling others. It could even be to someone who seems way outside of the fold. seems like they are not a child of God, and they have no interest in being a child of God. But one might assume about this. Someone told her about Jesus. Seed was planted. Holy Spirit grew. I think we have to give others that chance. Others that chance. Don't do what the disciples did. They're like, yeah, this lady's here. Her away. Annoying us. Trying to go back to the beach. Right? Here's an enemy of Jesus at the feet begging That's a significant thing. That's something to celebrate. I'm not something to send her away. Right? But we can often have these thoughts. There's no point telling them about Jesus. They're not going to be interested. They're an enemy. I would say this story gives us that picture. Still, she has faith. Give others. The Holy Spirit. Second thing I'd say: continue to lean in, trust Jesus, no matter how bad things look. No matter how bad things look. This, this is an example here of trust, faith, humility here. And there's a miracle that has taken place in this woman's life. And we can sometimes blow it off and be like, have a conversation with Jesus and give her what you want. But obviously, we don't know how long she's suffering from this situation. But we know Jesus' conversation with her was rough. We don't know how long of silence that was as he didn't answer a word. For her, it was silence. For many of us, it was Maybe there is a situation in our life we are calling out to him. I think she serves a good model. And you to lean in. Jesus wasn't being silent. They know. Drawing. Maybe you've gone to Jesus and feel like you've been met with silence. That our prayer life should look like where you keep asking, begging, paw if you really want to. 
right? But our, our default should be not like, stop praying about this or go another direction, try something else. Our default should be keep asking Jesus. Only one. I also think it's really cool that Jesus built from a distance. A lot of the times, here he heals from a distance. Okay, your daughter's here. And I think I would have been tempted to be like, wait, sure? Would you come with me just in case? <laughs> you know? But instead, I imagine she got up, looked at home. She had to trust on her way home. But that was true. She didn't get the answer, actually, until she got home. Indeed. The third thing I would say that we can just take from the story is approach God. I think God wanted this whole story to be a picture of how we should approach Him. How we should and can approach Him. We must approach God with humility. Same way that she approached Jesus. Right? As you look at how, first off, she just showed up. Right? She's a Canaanite, she lives in this area. Her going to someone who was said to be son of David, Jewish Messiah, her simply going to Him, she has turned her back on her eyes. She has turned towards Jesus. Then she fell at his feet, right? Giving him honor. She was exalting him above herself. She doesn't come to Jesus and says, hey, here's your opportunity. Heal my daughter and I'll follow you. No, she goes, Jesus, please. I am desperate. Heal her. Knows essentially her place. Is really triggering to a lot of people. Um, but essentially, this is also a picture of us. A picture of us for Christ, right? We were actually brought in by God's grace. We didn't just by default be included in the family of God. We don't have anything to offer Him. Oh, you, come on in. Like, no, no, us thing. Just by His grace. She affirms, she just pleads. His kindness, his goodness, his generosity. He doesn't say anything about it. You should heal her because of this, this, and this. You're supposed to do this. Come on, if you're really that good, you would do this. No. All she comes with is her request. Tim Keller says that all you need is need. Many of us don't have need. Oftentimes we can have a bit of arrogance. Good, you'll do God, if I've been good, all we need is need. Jesus commends her for it, for, for being needy, being humble in this way. That serves as a model Just approaching God humbly. Because James, James chapter 4, says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I think we have to step back and hear like, you have been searching for God. You've been pursuing God. And an honest question, asking ourselves, is my pride affecting my ability to find God or give it to hear from God? My pride affecting what I hear from God. Is that possible? God opposes the proud. Grace. Psalm 138, our place. Says, for though the Lord is high, guards the low, body, or the proud, knows from afar. Knows from afar. Maybe this is something we need to consider. God does feel far from us. Is our pride, is there pride between us? 
This story serves as an example of what to do instead. Follow his Take him out as his Lead with him. Jesus, I just need to see what you have. And you care enough about me. Just give me some crumbs. Serves as a beautiful picture and a model to us how we can approach him. Empty hands. Make this. So this story, though strange, it is a beautiful picture of how approach God. Beautiful picture of who we are, how we've been saved by him. Generous Jesus, whose mission is to the ends of the world. That anyone who call on his name. So I just encourage us then, we leave. Give others the chance to hear about Jesus. Lean into Jesus no matter how bad things look. Pray about that one. Approach God. Approach him. Without pride, arrogance, and close to him. I'll believe you if you do this Approach him. So with that, we're going to continue in worship. you please bow your heads? We're going to spend some time praying and asking God. Because, Father God, there are people in this room who have come to you and we feel like we've been met with silence or we feel like you have just been far apart from us. So, God, we just come before you humbly now. We hold out our hands with nothing to give, just asking that you would We thank you for being the God who has adopted us and brought us in the family. We just, nothing but thanks, turn to you. Jesus, I just pray over coming to We would just root out those pieces in which our pride can get between us and us. Cause us to separate from you. Cause us to fail to lean into the work that you're doing and hinder our faith in that way. God, can you just give the people in this room the gift of faith? Come before you with our needs. God, needs in here are many. You are the good father that we trust for those things. So, when things don't look great, we are confused at what you do. We declare now with our words, our good, trust and believe in you. Cry to you and praise for the ways that we've seen you work. God, many of us request Jesus, you receive our praise. Thank you.